Hi, Anushka here. In this series, I'd really like to take the opportunity to tell you a little bit about The Brilliant Breakfast, an initiative that I set up two years ago to help the Prince's Trust support disadvantaged young women. It really can be as simple as putting the kettle on, inviting a few friends round, or hosting a breakfast for the team at work and asking everyone to give what they can to help change a girl's life. So that's The Brilliant Breakfast, starting October the 10th this year. And for more details, visit thebrilliantbreakfast.co.uk. Thank you. I'm Anushka Dukas, and welcome back to My Life in Seven Charms. For me, there are so few things which can evoke a memory like a tiny, detailed charm. In this new series, I'll be meeting seven extraordinary women and hearing their stories through this very special 18-karat gold biography. I don't think we can go back to how it was. But we still have to keep coming up with things to champion the work because it is harder to be a black anything. The thing about the George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter and everything that happened, everyone took part. When I talk to kids now, they see things so differently now. They have a much more even view of the world, I think. Today's guest is an authority in the world of jewellery. She has written a definitive book on key designers and writes for The Economist, Vogue and Vanity Fair. One of her earliest memories is twirling around her grandmother's garden wearing all of her jewellery and being captivated by the experience. I'm delighted to welcome Melanie Grant to My Life in Seven Charms. OK, so your first charm, great bunches of pink roses, wild and free, you describe them. So because they're little charms, I haven't made them all carved in kind of opaques and opals. Mm-hmm. I really made them um, three-dimensional um, in yellow gold, green savorite leaves, and then different coloured uh, graded pink sapphires. Mm. But tell me about these roses. So my, my grandma, Eileen, was kind of one of my closest friends. She She was one of those phenomenal women who... Everyone felt that they were her favourites. She she loved you so profoundly that you felt that you were the only person in the world for her. And as the oldest grandchild, um, we just kind of got on. You know, we just we just sort of became friends. She was a fantastic cook. So she was she had this sort of big kitchen and we're always cooking together. Well, I say cooking. I was the soup or the gravy stirrer. (laughs) My job was to stir gravy. She used to make gravy from bones from scratch. And I used to have to stir it for hours. And she just, I was kind of mesmerized by her as a child because everyone loved her, but she just gave all the time. She was so kind of selfless, but she had a streak of steel, which I really admired. So she kind of, she was that, that rare kind of combination of steely, but loving. Sorry. So was she, was she your mother's mother? Yeah. Okay. Am I right in thinking that she collected lots of jewellery? So she had secret compartments. In what? Um, in her sort of boudoir. <laughs> right. Uh, she had a very sort of nice chest. And uh, there was a lot of talcum powder. She had lots of small <laughs> pots of things, you know, like small pots of creams and talcum powder and small pink things. And as a child, you were intrigued by these things. Cause actually, you were allowed to go into them when she was there. Whereas my mum wasn't really that kind of person. You know, she she didn't really care about things like that. So... My granny would say, come, come and come into the bedroom. And then we look at all her things. She got out sort of beautifully tidied handkerchiefs and 
jewels and creams and we'd sit there and we'd somebody put a bit of lipstick on and it was just it was a wonderful it was dream. a girl's heaven i mean that is girl's heaven isn't and it? I, I was allowed to wear all the jewels and then you oh know. hang on what about these jewels so she had some sort of 1920s costume jewelry which she really liked and it was mesmerizing so do you think um do you think any your love of jewelry has it did it come did it start from there do you think i think she ignited it yeah Without having any idea. It felt happy. It, it, it summed up happiness for me. And so you spent a lot of time with her cooking. And in, did she have a lovely garden? Of the, I'm just trying yeah, to get to the why the roses. It was that time, you know, in the old days, back yeah. in those days, you, you kind of played out as a child. You know, you were never in. Somebody called your name when it got dark and you went home, but you were mostly out just running about. Yeah, no screams. And she was always sort of in the garden. And I just had these I, these kind of memories of it being sunny. And she was pottering about sort of doing things with roses or she just was always happy. And it, it was a very happy feeling you know, you're a kid because your parents are often telling you off but your grandparents are just like your friends yes yes so you just gave her everything you had because she was always giving so whatever she wanted you just if she wanted you to be quiet you were quiet because you just wanted to her to be happy but those moments where we were sort of together for me kind of represent a really sort of idyllic part of my childhood playing sunny jewelry nana food you know my, my parents were probably somewhere in the background but yeah. it was just that freedom to roam and be beautiful your second charm is a lioness intertwined with an m i i love the idea of that and i actually so enjoyed working out how how to do that so basically i've done a three-dimensional uh, lioness in yellow gold texture to have the kind of feeling of the fur and I think black diamond eyes and then a capital M it's quite hard if you can't see this to visualize it but a capital M small pave rubies all the way across it it could be gorgeous actually I think it's I was kind of excited by that um, will you tell me why you've chosen a lioness so my mum Maudie is quite a character. <laughs> she she's definitely wild, mm. and she's probably my best friend. She's very naughty. <laughs> so growing up, I was definitely the sensible one, right? And she was the wild one. For many years, people have said to us, you know, you're the Safi to her Adina from Absolutely Fabulous, and it makes a lot of sense. And I was always saying, oh, I don't think we're going to do that. And she's like, Well. I always remember her coming to the gates of school to pick me up. And she was always wearing this very long camel coat with this wild blonde hair. Um, and she just sort of would glide in. And all the other mothers were wearing sort of, I don't know. Perfect. Well, a bit, bit. Just sort of anoraks. Right. She wasn't an anorak person, you know. Right. And she was always a bit like she had these fantastic Dame Edna Reverage glasses, these red glasses. And um, I just remember being so excited, you know, like waiting for her to come and pick me up because we had such good chats on the way home. And I just remember seeing this column of, of this caramel column with the blonde hair. And I waited for that moment. Oh, my goodness. So, so that's why I've chosen Lioness, because she was wild and blonde. Yeah. So in my head, because that's yeah. so interesting, I thought it was because she was Leo. Oh, she's also a Leo. Oh, she's a, yeah. OK. I assumed it was a Leo. Yeah. But she, yeah, she's, I say, a character. And 
I never really, like at school, understood people with normal mummies, you know. It's so interesting because so many children, young children, were yeah. desperate for a normal mummy. They wouldn't yeah. want anybody, uh, uh, you know, who would be in any way not normal. I, I mean, I, I yeah. for my remember my mother coming to school with pink hair, and I just desperate for her yeah. to stay at the end of the drive. <laughs> Please don't come. Don't out. embarrass me. <laughs> don't you, embarrass. You me. couldn't be embarrassed with my mum. Like I have no ability to be embarrassed now. <laughs> but not even when you were little. No, I never cared what anyone thought, and that was partly because of her. Because she always said to me, "Do whatever you want. Um, you can be anything you want. Just do. You know, don't listen to anyone. Do whatever you want in your heart." And so. I never, it never occurred to me to care that, you know, other people's opinions that would affect what I wanted yeah. to do. I just, you know, I always did whatever I liked. God, that's an amazing ability um, to instill that in a child. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the biggest gift she gave my brother and I, that we just followed our dreams, really. How old is your brother? My brother's, well, I'm not supposed to say, he, he's, he's, a, he's a lot younger than me. He's eight <laughs> years younger than me. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> he lives in... America. Okay, and what does he do? He's a record producer right. and a fashion designer. God, wow. So so your what your mum said we believed you could do it. anything. Yeah. You clearly <laughs> believed it. Yeah. So let's just kind of get a scene for what everybody else around you was doing. What we were yeah. I mean first of all, where were you at school and kind of so you're being brought up in Chiswick or No, so we I grew up in Hornsey. Right. Um and went to a school called Highgate Wood. Right. So there was a school called Highgate School, which was the posh school. Yeah. We were the other school. Yeah. Which wasn't posh at all. Right. And there were no expectations when I was at school, in my school. In your school? Yeah, there were no expectations you would do anything interesting. The expectation were, was really that you would go and be useful uh, working in a factory or something which was practical and useful uh, where you would probably have a job for life if you were lucky. Right. And so... But me saying I wanted to be a journalist was met with kind of fascination, really. They didn't really know what to do with that. But did you go and see anybody about careers and things? And did they? Yeah, we, a careers advisor came to our school, I think when I was about 10 or something, and said to me now. 10? 10. Well, quite young. Careers at 10? Yeah, well, you had to, you had to choose your GCSEs. They're like, well, what do you want to oh, do? Right. So I said, I want to be a journalist. And she said, I think you should be a baker's assistant. And I said, but why? And she said, because people will always need bread. <laughs> oh my God. And I realised at that point, I said, oh, I just don't want to do that. Um, it was so limiting. You know, my school wasn't the school that you went to university from that school. You, you went and did a sort of a trade. OK. And they were like, you'll hurt yourself if you try and aim too high. But this must have come, this kind of real ambition from your side, must have come from your parents, did it? No. So my parents, my mum was a secretary and my dad was a painter and decorator. Right. And I remember reading, uh, watching Newsround when I was about seven or eight and being transfixed by it and thinking, I, w I just want to tell people stories. That's what I want to do. So it kind of started at that point. But then, of course, leaving school, most of the people I was in my year didn't go to university. They just got jobs or got pregnant or went to prison. Mostly. I mean, we're going to go on yeah. to talk about how you really went on to do what, you, what you've what you ended up doing. Just tell me a bit about your dad. Um, so he was a painter-decorator. Yes. And very present at home, always. Yeah, so, you know, when I grew up, I was one of the first mixed-race children, really, of that generation. 
you know, a lot of people would say to me, where are you from? I was kind of like this weird, freaky other. You got a lot of that. There was a lot of curiosity. You know, my mum would walk down the street with me as a, a baby and people would just sort of be a bit shocked. So she's totally blonde. Yeah, so mom. she had okay. that as well. Yeah. And, you know, my dad, you know, was at home. And I remember one day one of the boys from school said to me, you know, he didn't believe that I had a black dad. He said, like, you just don't have one. I, you just made that up. And I said, no, I really do have one. So he came to my house and we looked through the curtains. He was like, oh, my God, he's there. <laughs> and I said, yeah, and, he's, he's, and he's, he's black. I said, I know. <laughs> he was like, oh, he was so shocked. So that was interesting, you know. And obviously that side of my, of my life being a Jamaican side and having my dad there. And it really affected the culture. I grew up in because I was really into reggae music for a very long time as a teenager. I had a real balance, you know, a lot of my family that I was really close to were English and, yeah. and white and my dad's sort of culture really sort of, I felt really at home in that culture. It was very accepting. No one said to me, where are you from? Yeah. They just accepted you. If you were part black or black, you were just black. There was no, you know, no one asked you. They just accepted you. So culturally, a lot of my friends and a lot of the things I did were sort of within that musical landscape. Yeah. But family-wise, it was all roast dinners and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they were accepting, though, were they? They might not have seen... Yeah, I mean, my dad, my, my granddad had travelled a lot and right. lived in India and things during the war. So, And because my dad was a big cricket fan and my... Mm -hmm. Uh, granddad was obsessed with cricket and we'd have to go and watch him play cricket all the time they bonded over cricket so there could have been some shade I mean no one ever said that to me but I think you know compared to how I'm sure a lot of people what they had to face they seemed very accepting but yeah is he still alive yep he's uh he's well again he won't thank me for saying this but he's nearly 80 and he lives in North London Oh, how lovely. They're both very much around. Yeah, they're both the funniest people I actually know, my, my parents. My dad is a complete and utter character. I don't know actually how two such entertaining people managed to find each other. So they found each other, but am I right to think they divorced at some point? When I was about 20, 21, yeah, right. they broke up. Right. But then they're, they're good mates. They're still friends. I've never, I've never seen them argue. And uh, they're still hilarious the two of them sometimes when the, you know before COVID they used to come to my house I used to say come round and potter about and it was just it's weird because as you get older they just seem to get smaller they shrink your parents don't they, they seem to be yeah. these god sort of life-size huge yeah, characters and then you get older and they're kind of shuffling about over there and you're like how did you get so small and shuffly <laughs> and they're sort of chatting amongst themselves you know they're just yeah they are funny <laughs> They must be incredibly proud of you and your brother. Yeah, they don't really know how it happened. I have a lot of conversations where they say, but how did this happen? I'm like, I don't know. Like, how did we have you? How? And I'm like, I don't know. It just, we were always a bit different. Your third chance awesome. I love this. So this is an exploding heart with words bursting from it, you said. Um, you said to me you really love the work of Roy Lichtenstein, pop artist. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I, I kind of taken it as red, really, that it's a yellow gold uh, heart with the word pow. Great. 
pow engraved on it, surrounded by kind of orange and yellow sapphires, which are pave set. And then I love the way you said, well, perhaps perhaps the words, maybe the words could move or the explosion yeah. spin. I'm, I'm quite good at making things spin and yeah. uh, but I don't think I can make them actually explode yeah. as such. So um, I'm not doing very good of explaining <laughs> this because I, I think, think you might be able charm. to explain it better <laughs> being the writer. How could you explain that? Well, a lot of what I write about is about power. Yeah. And I think an explosion is kind of sums it up, really. It, it totally does. And I feel that words kind of exploded into my life. Um I was the first person in my family to go to university. And that, for me, was like a grenade going off in my life. Yeah, I went from sort of, you know, growing up in North London with all the people I knew. And I went to university in London, but it was like a different dimension, an alternative universe. I had no concept that learning could transform you in that way. And it was like, I remember going home the first day thinking, I just can't believe how good this is. Can I, can I come mm. back to that? Because I, I just step back one bit, because we've talked about being at school and the fact that they told you you needed to go and be a baker's assistant <laughs> or yes. whatever. So at what point did you suddenly think, OK, I, I want to go to university? Where, where did that all kick in, given that none of your family had been? Um, so I had a conversation with my grandma. She said, you know, I had to leave school when I was very young. Um, I had no choice. You know, if you can, if you have a chance to be educated, you've got to take it. And I just didn't know what to do. I was quite scared. And there was this pressure. Everyone around me just wanted to leave school and earn some money and move out and like go clubbing on the weekends. Yeah. And I just thought I could sense there was something bigger out there, but I couldn't see it because no one I knew had done it. So I just thought I've got to trust Nana because she, she knows a lot more about the world. So I went for it. And any doubts? It was terrifying. Terrifying. In, in what respect was it terrifying? Everyone on my course had a lot of money. I didn't have any money. So I was working a night job and a weekend job. What were you doing? I was working in do-it-all on the sawmill. Well, sorry? Making doors. <laughs> you were making doors? Yeah. Builders would come in and say... I want a door like this. And they had this massive sawmill because I was really tall. They put me on it. And I, said, oh, I just loved it. You know, it was quite creative, really. <laughs> get into it. And they were like, but where's your boss? And I'm like, I'm making the door, my friend. Do you want one or not? <laughs> they're like, well, why is this girl making my door? Isn't there a man somewhere? I'm like, no, it's me. And then. That's extraordinary. Okay, that's I love one that. job. Yeah. And then I was doing packing yogurts at night in Sainsbury's and very, very sobering doing that because it was freezing cold I mean I knew I couldn't do that as a job yeah. and I knew that was what I was staring at if I didn't if I messed up the degree so <laughs> that was quite uh, a good moment yeah I mean you really you really Grunt, work that for that degree you really ground it out yeah and did you come across any kind of bias at university yeah I mean there weren't many of us right in my entire year there was four of us so and also my school was pretty much very a complete mixture. So I'd never really been in a system where I wasn't just one of lots of other people who yeah. were completely different. So yeah. that was interesting. I joined the Caribbean sort of society yeah. and I met lots of people. And that, that was really nice kind of experience, sort of connecting with other black people. 
doing a degree because in those days I didn't even really know any other black people doing degrees you know it just was unusual especially from yeah. like you know I lived in a council estate like there was so few of us some people were quite threatened by it and said but you're you know again you're gonna hurt yourself they won't let you in I remember someone said that to me and did you think that was right did you did you believe that um I knew what they were I knew what they meant but I had to find out for myself and I had to try, I had to try. So on leaving uni, did you try then to, to start to go into writing or to, you know, into a newspaper, magazine? I thought writing was going to be a step too far. Right. Because at uni, the only people in, in the writing section were really, really posh. So I thought I probably couldn't do that so I just wanted to get any job in the media really so um I, I approached the BBC mum wrote me a very very good letter because she was as a secretary she was very good at that and they said we don't have an internship program so I just sort of went one day well, and hang on went to the BBC went to the BBC because again that's that's kind of who I am you know someone says no you can't do that I will just we'll see yeah. so I went to the BBC kind of hung out and they gave me some photocopying to do you were just in reception. In. I, I'm just I trying kinda, to get a picture. I kind of snuck in, you know, like because okay. you know security in those days wasn't what it is now, you know, with terrorism. So uh, my dad was sometimes a bouncer, and uh, sometimes you know I go to clubs, and that bouncers would be, oh yeah, I you know your dad, you know he works for the, that person, that person. So I think there was a bouncer who I recognised from a club, and he was, oh yeah, you can come in, but just don't, you know, don't, don't do anything you, silly. Yeah. And then they realised that I wasn't really supposed to be there. And they said, but who are you? And I said, I'm just, you know, I just really want to just help out. I don't, you don't have to pay me. I just want to learn. And they said, you can stay for a couple of weeks because we really need the help. And then I did that two summers running. And then they, they made it into a job. Um, well, and then I didn't get the job. What do you mean you didn't get the job? You so were doing made, the job. I know. They made a sort of, they did an internship programme. Thanks to you. Thanks to me. And uh, and then they advertised for it. And I went for the interview and I just didn't, I didn't get it. Somebody internally got it who was doing another job. So then what happened? So I went to a very small publishing company in Islington above a Chinese takeaway. Yeah, right. Now this is the stuff of, of, <laughs> of comedy. Um, I worked for a woman and a man who were partners in this tiny production company. And they were both married and both having an affair. With together. each other. So at any oh, one nice. time you go to work... And they'd either be making out in like <laughs> the conference room or they wouldn't be speaking to each other. And they'd say, can you tell her that I need this right now? And I'd have to go into her oh room. And she would say, can you tell him that he's a complete asshole and I'm not going to speak to him today? So I, so you never knew what, what you were going to go into. But they let me do lots of things, kind of let me do anything so I was interested in. a massive opportunity, actually. Yeah, it was great. Of, yeah. Because they, if, if they, they were hadn't been having an affair, maybe, no, you know. I, I would probably be much more limited. Yeah. Carmel, yeah. it's an incredible story. I mean, you, that just wouldn't happen now. The, the bit, yeah. and particularly about the BBC. I mean, no, you could just... never sneak in now. Yeah, there was a freedom at that time that if you had a bit of gumption, you could kind of, you just can't do that now. Which I think is a shame for kids. So that sounds like quite an unusual route into your next job, which was the FT. After the Chinese takeaway, I went to work for the FT and then I worked for lots of different newspapers. I worked for The, the Guardian, uh, The Independent, Independent on Sunday, um, quite a few different ones. But I mean, hold on, going mm -hmm. from a kind of little media company above a Chinese yeah. going to the FT, how's that work? Well, I kind of, 
because they were so I I went as a kind of editorial assistant, right? And you had to kind of choose between words and pictures. And again, everyone doing words was kind of like from Eton. Okay. So I thought I'm going to choose pictures because I, you know, I also have always loved photography. So I started doing us picture editing, and so I did that in a lot of different places. And then, so I was at the Times as assignments editor, which is a a very tough job. What does was, that mean, assignment editor? So we had a photo editor, but I was in charge of all the photographers around the world. So on a newspaper. Wow. You have to get into conference and place with photographers for the day. So you have to really kind of ass- assess and kind of predict what the, what the news is going to be. So you can put people in the right places. And then throughout the day, you have to just roll with the rolling news. So you, you create the news visually and it's a high pressure, bonkers job. Um, and I was, one of, I was one of only two women on the, on the news desk at that time. The only person of colour at that time, I was young. I was late twenties. It was like a baptism by absolute fire. On my first day, the news editor was like an old kind of Scottish guy. He looked at me and just wouldn't speak to me. Oh, so he was. That just was because like, you were black. I just and think a woman. it was. I was a woman. I was young. I was black. I was so not what he was right. kind of comfortable with. <laughs> yeah. I never really found out because he never spoke to me. But I had to try and get his list in order to deal with the news and he just wouldn't give it to me so it and i would have to break into his computer and try and get his list so i could actually go into conference with an idea of what was happening well it's absolutely bonkers also my second day someone thought i was the cleaner God. it was a different time how did you feel about that i mean obviously it's a very different time to now yeah but do you remember feeling pissed off about that or do you remember just thinking that was just it was shocking actually you were and, shocked then? Yeah, I was shocked. I mean, you know, we're having a moment, definitely having a black moment in the last couple of years. You know, I remember a time where my boss came in. He said, oh, what are you doing? I said, I'm making myself some lunch. He said, what's that? I said, oh, it's a Jamaican patty. He said, you mean a pasty? I said, no, it's a patty. He said, but you mean a patty? I said, no, it's a patty. He said, what's a pat- Jamaican patty? I said, oh, it's a snack. He said, but why are you eating that? And I said, because I'm half Jamaican. He said, are you? <laughs> and I said, where did you think this comes from? Marbella? <laughs> yeah. And they were like, oh. And I think they kind of knew I was different, but I think they just didn't couldn't want... really comprehend that so you could be something else. Really. Didn't want to verbalise it. Not really. And I once went to work with corn, uh, cornrows in my hair in the summer, and I had a lot of people being very uncomfortable. I had some people say to me, why have you got that in your hair? What, 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 what does it mean? What, you know, it's not professional. You should take it out. And I'm like, I'm just going to do whatever I like. Thanks. So it was definitely, you know, shocking. Shocking. And I don't think there was a couple of people who were malicious about it, but most people were just totally ignorant. They just didn't really understand. I just don't think they knew any black people at all. And would you socialise together? Um... Not really. I mean, to be honest, the job was so crazy. And so that job toughened me up. Right. I've never had a job since then where I don't feel I could deal with it. Because if you can go through that in hard news on a very, in, in, in that kind of environment, you can do anything. After that, I just thought. Sod it. Yeah, I can really just do anything I want. 
and not, you know, I can deal with any of it. But it sounds, it sounds, I mean, that you're incredibly um, able to deal with uh, and were always able to deal with any of these issues. But I was having panic attacks. I mean, oh, you were? Yeah, yeah I was Because you, you, you make stressed. it sound like actually no. it was all... No, I'd go home and my boyfriend was like, you know, you just have to stick it out. And I, you know, I knew I was learning a lot, which is the only thing that kept me going. But it was physically demanding, like stress wise, I was not in a great place. And then we had the seven, seven bombs and I had to live at work pretty much for a week. Had to interview people whose children had been killed and didn't know where they were. And that finished me off. I left the times after that. The things you have to look at, the, the images of that you would never see in the newspaper, they're too distressing. I just thought, no, I don't think so. I'm going to have to do something else. OK, well, your fourth charm, um, this must be the beginning of the, of the real jewellery story, is a little tiara. Um, and... Um, it's a tiny, perfect tiara with little diamonds on the crown that kind of sits on your head and moonstones, graduated moonstones, biggest in the, in the middle. And you could kind of, it's a charm, but it could almost be a ring, couldn't it? It could be just perfect. So tell me about this tiara. So The Economist, I was doing lots of photography and styling and got to know some of the jewellery brands. Uh, someone at Cartier phoned me and said, you know, we're having this big exhibition at the Grand Palais. Uh, we'd love you to come and cover it. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not a writer. You know, the fashion editors probably would be happy to do that. And they said, no, we want you. And I said, why? And they said, well, because we know you love jewellery and you collect it. And we want somebody who really has an obsession. And I went and again, it changed my life. In that I got into the auditorium. It was dark. And the power of that jewellery floored me. Tell me about how that, how that felt. It was just sheer, it was kind of like a transcendental experience. It was a spiritual element to it. It was the beauty and the history. And the tiara we were talking about here was, I ended up sort of wandering about in the dark and I was standing next to these women and they were crying. And I looked over and I said to one of them, why are you crying? And she said to me, I never thought they would let us in to see something this good. She said, we're cleaners. And they were overwhelmed. And I just thought, wow. I felt the same as them, that I was being let into this world. I never thought I'd be able to access. And I stumbled out of there and I just felt changed. I felt different, like something had happened to me. And I thought, I have to get closer to this stuff. I have to write about it. And I don't know how, because I'm not a writer, <laughs> but I'm going to have to find out. So I thought, right, that's it. That's what I'm going to do next. So what is it about jewellery that you think affected you so much on that on that day? And then subsequently, because you've obviously, obviously always loved yeah. jewellery. It's power and beauty combined. It's, it's powerful economically. It's powerful historically. You know, we've, we've waged war to own great jewellery. Mm-hmm. It changes people. You know, I say to people who don't care about jewellery, often men at parties, middle-aged men who say to me, oh, jewellery, what, that's nonsense. And I say, if you've seen a fantastic diamond, a famous diamond, you can feel the energy. It's actually an entity. You know, it pulls you in. You can't look away. I can't explain that to someone unless they experience it, like I experienced it. So I think I connected with it 
and I felt it at a very, very deep level. And I kind of fell in love. How amazing. I've, I've very seldom heard anybody describe their first experience of real high jewellery like that. So when you left that exhibition, mm-hmm. what happened next? <laughs> so I got home and I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to actually write something. And The Economist is really hard to write for. Mm. I remember sitting there thinking, do I really want to do this to myself? Do I want to start at 40 in something which is this hard when I could just have this comfortable life? And do you think writing about jewellery is very different to writing about other things? No, I think, first of all, you have to figure out if you can write. You hadn't figured that out I didn't know. I, I said to three or four women very, very good women writers at The Economist, can you read some of the things I'm going to write and tell me if I've got any skill whatsoever, any talent? And they all said to me, it's raw, but you've got something, keep going. But if they'd all said to me, "Mm," I may have just not. Because I didn't want to be an average writer. I wanted to be very, very good. And learning at The Economist was a baptism by fire because everyone is such a good writer. And it forces you to really, you know, be good or go big or go home really and you know you have to I didn't have any understanding of grammar no one taught us grammar at school I remember having a meeting with my then boss who was saying to me your apostrophes are evil (laughs) and I said I've never been told how to apply an apostrophe she said but what about your school and I said I didn't learn any of that in my school you marked your own homework (laughs) yeah so again everyone who helped me at The Economist was a woman and was Without that by them. chance? Was that, did you feel safer going to, to women to ask them? I asked lots of people and the women said yes. Ah, that's the generosity of women. Mm, and so without them, I wouldn't be here at all. That's so interesting. Can you even pinpoint men in the, or a man in the same way that's helped so positively? Yeah, there was a guy called Ken when I went to the FT who gave me that job. He was black. And again, I'd never seen anyone black in the media. So I was stunned in the interview. I just stared at him the whole time. Um, And he gave me that first chance to get into serious media. Without him, I probably wouldn't have penetrated that level of journalism. It's really it was I was very lucky. Well, no, but uh, um, I mean, you make your own luck and clear grit and determination. (laughs) (laughs) And it's rather amazing at 40 to suddenly become a writer. It's like, wow. Yeah, but I I felt I'd always wanted to do it, but I'd never had the courage to really go for it because I just thought they were never going to let me do that. So, but when I finished uni, um, I went to Fiden for a job, which I didn't get. And I was in, I was in the... um, the boardroom waiting for them to come in and there were all these books by famous authors and I thought I'm going to be back here one day and I'm going to be on that shelf and 25 years later I went back to that boardroom and my book was there and that brings us perfectly on to charm five which is a book um with the word coveted written on it you had been very specific that the cover of your book, Coveted, is in purple. So I've made it in amethyst, perfectly uh, polished inside, and it's a locket so that you can put maybe some little extracts of your book inside. Um, but can you tell me, how did, how did it come about suddenly to be writing a book? So I was doing a talk for Philips on 21st century master jewellers, 
And after the talk, um, someone from the publishers approached me and said, have you ever done a book before? Fiden is the oh, publisher. Oh, Fiden, yeah. yeah. The, one of the biggest art publishers in the world. Yeah. So that, And obviously, I, because I've been there for this interview <laughs> yeah. 25 years beforehand, I was quite nervous. So a couple of weeks later, she messaged me saying, we're doing it. And I thought, oh, my God, I've got no idea how to write a book. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. That is extraordinary. They hadn't done a book on jewellery since 1949. No, but they wanted lots of designers in it and they wanted a proper narrative, not just the usual jewellery book, which is here's a nice piece of jewellery, but they wanted an actual purpose to it. Yeah. And that, I think, being at The Economist, you know, was one of the reasons why they said yes. You, you more than most people know most jewellers and you certainly know, um, if you haven't met them, you know of them. So can you just tell me how you managed to select just 75? It was horrific. Just 75. It was, it was yeah. really hard. I mean, I started off with probably 200. They had to be jewellers I felt were changing design. I felt were totally beyond the markets they were operating in who were giving us something beyond just jewellery, were giving us some other higher level of artistic, you know, creativity. Mm. And it had to be art. And a lot of jewellery, as we know, is product. So um, it was tough. And it was tough to weave it all together, to piece together 75 designers in a narrative that flowed. That was a challenge. And, and what, was the, what was your biggest fear of in embarking on this project that the book wouldn't be good enough and at any point did they was there a seed of doubt yeah i mean the first chapter i wrote i was they just said kind of do what you want i did what i wanted they were like not that <laughs> and i was like oh gosh and i went home and i remember saying to mum i just don't know if i can do this it's so hard and she was like you love this kind of stuff just get on with it stop moaning Go back to work. Yeah, get on with it. But, you know, it's, it's not giving up, which is the thing. So that's a perfect moment to talk about your next charm, Brilliant and Black. So I'd seen this charm being round, um, but with a very, with a static frame, but the inside, double-sided, and it spins super fast. And on one side is written black, filling up the entire space of the circle. And on the other side, it's written brilliant, also engraved. And around the frame, I've put black diamonds around one side. And on the other side of the frame, little white diamonds on each corner. I mean, so I, I assume that came from the book, I guess, the idea. Yeah. Yeah, so it's an, it was a selling exhibition at Sotheby's New York in September last year, 2021, where I suggested that I'd love to curate something dedicated to black uh, jewellery designers in the wake of George Floyd. And I just wanted to do something. And I thought, what can I do with, with whatever power I have to change something about access to opportunity? And lots of black designers have said to me, we just can't get to this high level of collector base, sort of the global collector, the art collector base. We just can't access it. You know, it's so hard to have the money to make anything at a high level and then know we're going to sell it. It's almost impossible. 
the response to it was phenomenal. I mean, everyone just connected as a community. And a lot of them knew each other, but had never really connected. And that was quite a bonus. But also there was so much raw kind of pain. All the things that you couldn't say before George Floyd, all the things that when someone asks you, is that a patty or a pasty? And you can't have a big argument with someone because you don't have the power to even say that's offensive. All of that came to the surface. And there was a lot of a lot of emotion and a lot of pain. And through the exhibition, we got to talk about it, not just in the industry. Like Cheryl Jones, one of the designers was, you know, we did a little film with her and she was saying some of the things people said to her when she got into the industry, like she'd never make it because she was black. She said, you know, I've never said that to anyone before. I never voiced those things that happened to me, but they kind of sit on your chest yeah. and you get on with it. You, you carry on with your business and your life. But the fact that you have a safe place to talk about that was quite, I think it floored us all. And the response to it also shocked us. To the exhibition. Yeah. Um, we had it in New York when we, we went to it, uh, when we were setting it up, we had some of the staff at Sotheby's come up to us saying we never thought we'd see us in that place. We had people in tears from security saying, I can't believe this is happening. God, it's, it is still incredibly yeah. shocking to think that was only a year ago. Yeah. I mean, on the day, we were a mess. Everyone was crying. We were crying. It, it just represented just the top level of, of, I suppose, the industry. And for us to all get there together yeah. um, was just beyond anything we'd, any of us had really hoped for. Um, but I never... Because it came here, didn't it? No, it hasn't been here. Is it coming? You heard it here first, <laughs> or not. <laughs> so let's see what happens. Let's see but, what happens. Um, and, and Mel, how, going forward now, yeah. how do you see that, that as an industry we can really help to, to support more and more black designers who still don't have the um, opportunities, perhaps? I mean, there are lots of initiatives that happened in the last year mm. or two, um, there's, you know, funds to get people money to start off with. There are mentorship programmes. I think the big fear is that we forget it. Now there's a war. That's why I'm asking, yeah. And that the moment passes and we go back to how it was. I don't think we can go back to how it was. But we still have to keep coming up with things to champion the work because it is harder to be a black anything. The thing about the George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter and everything that happened was it was the, there were the biggest protests in American history. And everyone took part in them. And that I thought I'd never see in my lifetime. And everyone took part, but, but the whole world listened. Yeah. And, they? you know, it was, it was painful. You know, mm. some people didn't want to see the statues thrown into the sea. And some people didn't want to have to deal with the ramifications of, of the privilege that exists. Yeah. Obviously, if you're, if, if you're the person who's benefiting from all the privilege, you want it to carry on. But I just think a fairer society benefits everyone long term. And when I talk to kids now, they see things so differently now. They have a much more even view of the world, I think, now. Do you, um, do you mentor young women? Yeah, young I mentor people? quite a lot of different people. Um, if they're motivated and they, have, and they have determination and I can see there's something there, 
and I, you know, and I can figure out a way that I can be useful, I often say yes. I would love, I mean, I'm sure you already do, but I'd love you to come and talk to some of the kids at the Prince's Trust. Who sure. Brilliant Breakfast. Yeah. Uh, you know, where we really try to help them because one of the things is, the biggest thing is confidence. And, and that's, that's, a, that's the most, if you can give them the confidence that they need, the rest kind of will come a bit easier. You've got to get past the fear because it is... Yeah. You're often told by people you can't do something. Sometimes your own parents, because they want to keep you safe, or sometimes the people around you because they don't want you to do what they can't do. Or they sometimes, don't want to fail. Sometimes it's the closest people to you who, who don't want you to have to go through it, you know. Yeah. And you've got to just do it anyway. And that once you get past that hurdle, you've got a chance. Your last charm is a Jamaican Blue Mountains. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, so this is a bit of a challenge, actually. You've done very well. So I've done it as a really as a kind of broken um, circular medal. And it's kind of more 2D um, than three-dimensional. But the mountains are raised um, and kind of like almost like embossed out. I guess would be would be a way to describe it, and they've got as you can see kind of graduated um, blue sapphires going to grey diamonds Ooh, until nice. it gets to the un until we get to the bottom of the mountain where it's brushed yellow gold, and the two halves when they're separated will meet perfectly together when they're put back together. Um, not sure if anyone's going to be able to understand <laughs> what that what that looks we like. Know. <laughs> but, Tell, tell me about, about these m mountains. So when I was 18, my mum took me to Jamaica and my dad's never been back. My mum has had a love affair with Jamaica her entire life and lived there at one point. And Is that so, where they met? No, they met here. Okay. So she took me there for my 18th birthday and we went with my aunt Pam, their friend Barbara and my friend Nikkei. And it was just a phenomenal experience. I didn't really know what to expect and I to felt totally at home. Like it felt like a spiritual kind of home. Really. Did you go and stay with friends or family? We stayed in a hotel. Right. But we again, we met so many characters. It's a different way of seeing life. You know, like here, so much of it's about like what you're wearing and it just isn't like that there. You know, it's just much more, there's a freedom to it, I think. So and a lot of my life has been about freedom. Me. Yeah. So really liked it. And, um, we went into the Blue Mountains, which were obviously, they were mountain people. And you'd be sort of walking through the mist and then there'd be some, some kind of raster guy would just walk past you and say, hey, a dog would trail behind him and then he'd be gone into the mist. And it was so peaceful and tranquil up there and still and timeless. I just felt really content. It was like a meditative state, state really up there. Yeah, I just really felt at home. And were you surprised by that? Was it kind of something about this dual heritage coming? Yeah, it felt like a connection. Like, you know, it felt like the two halves of myself kind of came together. And as I say, you know, as a mixed race person uh, back in the day, people were always asking you who you were. You know, were you black? Were you white? You had to choose. Um, I never felt I had to choose. I always felt I was everything. I was both. Why would you have to choose? A lot of people want you to say you're one or the other. 
they, they, it's easier for people to just put you in a box and say, right, you're that, than to have to deal with a combination that is trickier. Again, now it's probably different because there are lots of mixed race people, but then we were, there weren't many of us. You know, you, from both sides, you get some people kind of not really accepting you. It, it's, it's definitely, I mean, I, I know lots of mixed race people who've never really connected to one of their sides, you know. And they just grow up in a place and don't go to one of the other, you know, the other country. Yeah. So for me, I really liked going there early and I really felt at home there. there was, I was just part of a bigger whole, which, which really sort of was quite comforting, actually. Ever since going back, I've, I've always, you know, liked and talked about and visited the Blue Mountains. It's weird that your father's never wanted to go back. It's complicated, right. I think, you know. Yeah. There's always a kind of pressure to go back as the very successful right. person. And, and then suddenly all your family is somewhere else and, you know, he's never really managed it. And now he's not very well, so he, he probably, you know, won't be doing any long haul yeah. trips. Yeah. Um, I would have loved to have taken him back. but So you'll continue to go back? Yeah, I'd love to go back. I miss it, actually. Well, I've really, really enjoyed hearing about your journey. Thank you so much. I've loved it. <laughs> um, now, when somebody comes in 100 years or so and finds this, your life in Seven Charms, these Seven Charms, what do you want them to remember you for? What do you want your legacy to be? Freedom. That's very simple. I think yeah. everything has, for me has been about that. It so has, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. What's next? I don't know. I mean, this is open doors for me, which I didn't ever conceive could be this good. I'm just going to ride it and see what happens. And have you enjoyed the last eight, ten years more than the ones before? Well, it's funny. I went to see some kind of clairvoyant person oh, many years ago. And... Um, she said to me, you know, you get to 40 and your whole life is going to change and you'll you'll fulfill your destiny. Don't try too hard now. It's This isn't what it's going to be. And I was like, all right, then what happens at 40, you know? And so I kind of feel like I feel like I've become something more. Mm. Um, and the writing for me has unleashed a creativity that has been breathtaking. I mean, it, it sets me on fire in a different way to the other things I do with the curation I love it all but the writing is it's yeah it's something about that it's opened a part of my brain I didn't really know was there so I hope whatever's next writing is part of it because it's kind of something I just I feel I have to carry on with in some well, you've way you've found a complete passion you? yeah and it's just like it just comes out of me you know my final question is um so I'm going to make you one of these charms as a thank you and I'd like to know which one it is. Oh, I'm torn between the spinning Brilliant and Black. The book cover feels a bit odd to wear your own book. Yeah. A bit self-serving. And Maudie, no doubt, will steal <laughs> her charm with the lioness. So I'm going to go for Pow because it's like the explosion really sums up all of it. I think that's really exciting. Uh, I'm really looking forward to making that because it's going to be it's going to be really cool. You'll love it. We'll make Can't it. Can't wait. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be fantastic. Thank you so much, 
I really love talking to you and um, looking forward to the next chapter. Me too. <laughs> oh, I like that part. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to My Life in Seven Charms with me, Anushka Dukas. If you would like to see all of the charms and illustrations that I've made for my guests, please go to my website, anushka.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, I would be so grateful if you could rate and review and subscribe and also share with your friends. It would be such a help. Thank you so much to my producer, Robin at Fairly Media. See you soon.